Good morning. It's so good to be with you. So we've gathered together to worship our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're turning in our Bibles this morning now to Acts chapter 24. We're going to be looking at verse 1 and down through verse 21. And uh, next week, John, Lord willing, will carry us through the rest of this chapter. Now, what we're doing at this point is recognizing that the Apostle Paul is being placed in now the third situation, which he's going to have to give a defense a defense for his actions, a defense for what he has said, but most importantly, a defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And while his accusers seem to be focused upon the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is focused upon his risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And whenever life seems to be throwing you a curve, it seems to be extraordinarily difficult when you're facing things that you thought you would never face before. What I want you to do is to ponder the way the Apostle Paul handles a sense of difficult times. He maintains serenity. There is an extraordinary calm in his courage. He is able to maintain a sense of focus upon his risen Savior in the midst of accusations. So this morning, as we're exploring this passage together, in this third of six situations in which he is put on the defensive, we're going to be looking at a legal trial. And in this passage of Scripture, it divides naturally into two parts. I'm, never, I'm not too involved in three-point type expositions. I go with how the Scripture naturally divides. This is two, two divisions today that we're going to be looking at. And so we're going to see how uh, those that are opposed to him make their accusations in court. And then Paul is going to offer his defense. Let's check it out as we begin reading now in, in verse 1. And now, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case before Paul, against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found in this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, <coughs> even tried to profane the temple. But we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Pause. Prosecution now rests its case. It's time for the defense. This is the normal process in Roman legal proceedings. Now the defense takes turn. You pick it up now in the 10th verse. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, 
I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Now we get to the core, what I call the focal point of the text. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation, to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, hyphen, pause, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they've found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing. That I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead. That I am on trial before you this day. So we're going to explore this trial together. If you've ever been in court and you know the trying circumstances and the difficulties and the challenges of keeping focus, here's a situation where Paul is going to have to be his own defense attorney. He's going to provide his own defense. I want you to see the way he goes about doing it in a way in which he brings glory and honor to his risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And so, Father, in a fall of a world such as ours, there's a sense where everybody's on trial in one way, shape, or form. And biblically speaking, we find ourselves going through trials. But through it all, Father, we consider the one who not only went through his personal trials, he went through formal trials. Jewish, Roman, six in total, found guilty and then placed on a cross. But the proceedings were really part of your plan. So along, you intended three days later to raise him from the grave, and you did. And Father, we see how in your sovereign purposes you use all these things including in Christ's case, the accusers, is part and parcel of your strategy to be able to provide redemption for humanity, for us. You're sovereign. You're good. 
you're wise. And so, Father, in the moments to come now, as we are exploring this text together, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As once again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, Him only. Praying these things still again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a look at the picture that appears on the screen. It helps us to recall where we've been, how we got there. The Apostle Paul has been ministering in Jerusalem. And he has been challenged. And in the course of the nighttime hours, what he needed was legal protection. Roman protection from his Jewish opposition. And so this Messianic Jew, the Apostle Paul, in the midnight hours is escorted to a place we see on the screen, Caesarea. Now Caesarea was built by Herod the Great in honor of Caesar Augustus. So you see the word Caesar in the word Caesarea. Now Herod began the construction of this setting in 25 B.C., Took him about 12 years to finish. Pulled together the best architects throughout the Roman Empire because he wanted this to be such that it gave glory to the Emperor Caesar. All the streets there lead to the harbor, the Mediterranean. And the Herodian kings, the Roman procurators, well, they all had their official residences there. In Jesus' time, the population was roughly 200,000. And it was a mix of Jews and Gentiles. And it was the showpiece, if you will, of Roman culture. Look at the next slide. There was a theater that faced the Mediterranean. It's been excavated. There's a stone there found inscribed with the names of Caesar, as well as, interestingly, Pontius Pilate. Only known inscription bearing Pilate's name. There was also a temple with a huge statue of the emperor dedicated to Caesar in Rome, and it would be in that setting in which the Apostle Paul would have to take his stand and appeal to higher authority that there's someone above Caesar. Now, you might be asking, and perhaps Paul in a weaker moment might have been asking, what's your purpose in all this? Why am I here? Why am I going through what I'm going through? My plans for my future are not matching what God seems to be doing. But then as I was prepping in the early in the early portion of Thursday and on into Friday, I typically start my expositional preps around one on Thursday afternoons. I was recalling pages from the autobiography An American Life, written by Ronald Reagan, in which he wrote, I was raised to believe that God has a plan for everyone. And that seemingly random twists of fate are all a part of God's plan. 
My mother, who was a small woman with auburn hair and a sense of optimism that ran as deep as the cosmos, she told me that everything in life happened for a purpose. She said all things were part of God's plan, even the most disheartening setbacks. And in the end, everything worked out for the best. And if something went wrong, she said, you didn't let it get you down. You stepped away from it. You stepped over it. You moved on from it. And later on, she added, something good will happen. And you're going to find yourself thinking, quote, if I hadn't had that problem back then, then this better thing that did happen wouldn't have happened to me now. Is that good? And Paul would eventually be able to write to the Romans in that classic passage of chapter 8 of verse, of verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not to say that they feel good. Not to say that they look good. Not to say that they, that they appear good. But the, they all work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And it's purpose that I want to work with you as we consider this morning. Because what I want to do now in this trial where the prosecution takes its stand and then the defense in turn responds, I want to draw out two conclusions, or if you will, two considerations, better yet, that are found in these verses that help us to be able to understand better the purposes of God that he has for us in this fallen world. So the first now, as we now open up our text and we're going to explore it together, comes out of verse 1 through 9, appears on the screen. We're going to put it like this. Consider first of all with me how God's sovereign purposes are at work. Even when false accusations are made against God's people. And maybe, just maybe, somewhere along the way in life, you faced some things, heard some things, been confronted by some things that you said, that ain't true. Where are you, God? What's your purpose? But you keep your focus. And you pick it up in verse 1. For you see, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. Now, notice that they, this is after five days. So now, Paul has been taken and held in custody in Caesarea under Roman guard for five days, swept away in the midst of the night, protected from his Jewish antagonists. He's been there five days, and now something rather extraordinary happens. You don't normally see the high priest making his way into a mixed setting of Jew and Gentile. But here he comes to Caesarea, and we are told that he comes down. But if you know your map of Israel, you know that, that Caesarea is actually northward, northwest. 
How does this work? We're talking topographically here. In other words, he comes down from a higher level to a lower level as he's making his way northwestward towards Caesarea, this setting that was deemed the place that would be uh, the showpiece for, for the Roman Empire in the Mediterranean region that would be focusing its attention, the entire population, upon Caesar. And Paul is about to say there's someone greater than Caesar here. While a major statue to Caesar was right within the midst of where Paul would stand. Ananias has to come down. Comes down with some elders, making their way from Jerusalem to Rome, what I would call the two pivotal cities in the empire at that time. And evidently, according to this one here, we've got another man on our hands. His name is Tertullus. Who's he? Well, he must have been hired by the Sanhedrin as their legal spokesman to be able to press prosecution against Paul. And so, beginning in verse 2 now, because that's where you're at. When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse. So now, the prosecution is taking its stand. And as the prosecution begins here, and we've got Tertullus on our hands, a common Latin name could easily be a Jewish Roman citizen like Paul. You check out verse 2 and verse 3. Tertullus begins to accuse him in verse 2, saying, since through you, he's speaking now to the governor, Felix, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. You're right. See, the real issue here is that um, Felix was a disaster the Jews viewed him as such. And this is flattery that's blatantly false. Revolutionaries had escalated under Felix's, noted in historians, have noted it like Tacitus, Suetonius, and so on. Felix's corrupt, repressive administration. And rather than peace, there was unrest. Rather than reforms, there was disarray. What we've got here now is very typical in legal circles within the Roman Empire where you begin before the one who is going to be judging the case and you offer what was known at that point as legal flattery. And he's doing a good job of it, isn't he? And so he says, since through you we enjoy much peace, though the, the, the Jewish population did not. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, and you say, Gary, I think I remember that phrase, most excellent, in Luke's writing somewhere before. <coughs> and you're right. Because as Luke began his volume one, as he wrote the book of Luke to a man by the name of Theophilus, he had written in verse three of that opening chapter, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. 
So now, most likely then, volume one as well as volume two is written to a Roman official. In this case, Theophilus. And now he is pondering the way in which Paul presents himself to this most excellent Felix at this point. And here Tertullus is pressing the prosecution. He is making the case. Reforms are being made for this nation, so he claimed. In every way, in verse 3, and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. In reality, historians tell us it was anything but among the Jewish people. They viewed this as a Roman oppressor, and they view Felix as an instigator. But you see, the prosecution is attempting to lure the judge into their, into their court. But now, now what I want to do with you is to draw out not one, not two, three false claims made by the prosecuting attorney against the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is going to have to take it on, withstand this. And here it comes. But he says in verse 4, to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. There is your first accusation, that the Apostle Paul is an instigator of riots. But if you read the Acts accounts very carefully, it, were the, it was the opponents of the Apostle Paul who created the riot. They're flipping it. And maybe somewhere along in your own life experience, you were trying to defend yourself, and lo and behold, someone flipped it on you. And you're feeling defensive. Where do you go? Is the Apostle Paul praying at this point? Is the Apostle Paul seeking God at this point? Is the Apostle Paul having to find a way to turn attention towards the sovereign God who sent Jesus Christ, who was accused to go to the cross to die for our sins. Great evangelist. His name is George Whitfield. There's a two-volume work on his life we have in our living room. It's second to none. Written by Arnold Dalimar. Whitfield, great evangelist. He had led countless people to the Lord, not only in Great Britain, but up and down the colonies in the early days of America's history. And he received an incredibly vicious letter, accusatory. I want you to hear his response to the letter. I want to thank you heartily for your letter. As for what you and my other enemies are saying against me, I know worse things about myself than you ever say about me. With love in Christ, George Whitfield. You see, at this point, he was not out to please people in the culture. He was out to please God as he represented Jesus Christ in the midst of the culture. As are we. I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what you faced. But through it all, you've got to understand, like Ronald Reagan's mother would point out, 
there's a purpose. And in the midst of the purpose, we're here to please God, even when it seems as though our circumstances are less than pleasing. Tertullus isn't done, is he? Now he's got a second, second charge, and it comes out still there in verse 5. That second of all, he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. In other words, charge number one, an instigator of riots, but number two, a ringleader of a sect, the Nazarenes. Now, you might remember in the early days, or rather the early chapters of the book of John, where, where all of a sudden, some of those whom we would know them as disciples of Jesus Christ eventually, word is getting out. Jesus decided to go to Galilee, found Philip, said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Get this. Nathanael said to him, question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? How do you answer that one? Beautifully, Philip said to him, come and see. Sometimes that's about all you can do. Check them out. Come and see. Well, he's an instigator of riots, so Tertullus claims. He's a ringleader of a sect. So Tertullus claims. But through it all, the Apostle Paul has got to be saying to himself, but God has made a promise. And I have to understand that when God makes a promise, there's purpose attached to that promise. And when you're going through difficult times, you claim the promises of God, and then you embrace the purpose that is tied to the promise. It was late at night. Things had gone terribly bad. But the Lord appeared to the Apostle Paul in the midst of the night and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Promise. So there must be purpose now in the midst of this trial for God to fulfill his promise of getting me to Rome. Caesarea. It's got the word Caesar in Caesarea. Is this going to be the process by which I get from where I am to where I need to be, Rome? And this morning, or if you're watching on YouTube through the course of the days to come, and you're saying, how do I get from where I am to where it seems as though God has designed me to be? No matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what age of life, what I want you to understand is that there is purpose, there is plan, and through it all, there's promise. And we've got to pull all of that together and accept the fact that God is sovereign and the trials of life are not. But there's a third accusation. And the third accusation comes out of verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple. But then false claim, we seized him. Reality is that the Roman guards seized him, protected him from this Jewish mob. But now three accusations, and that's the third accusation. 
It's that he was the defiler of the temple. And so now Paul has got to listen. He's got to take it on the chin. And he's got to ponder, what do I do? How do I respond? And maybe this morning you are looking in your heart and you're saying, I've taken it on the chin. I'm trying to figure out what to do. I'm trying to figure out how to respond. Remember, false assumptions lead to false accusations. Happened to Jesus. Happens to Paul. During summer days, growing up each year, we would carve out some time as family and head north with this boy. Head up to Muskegon, Michigan, to a camp known as Maranatha. Wide range of gifted people, even Billy Graham would speak there year by year. And got to know some of those tied to it that are connected with uh, daily bread ministries, some of whom I eventually went to college with. Mark DeHaan, one of the DeHaans, tells the story of a man named John who was driving home late one night, picked up a hitchhiker, and as they rode along, he began to be suspicious about his passenger, Mark wrote. John checked to see if his wallet was safe in pocket. His coat that was on the seat between them wasn't there. Wasn't there. So he slammed on the brakes, sorted the hitchhiker out, said, hand over the wallet immediately. Well, the hitchhiker, shaken, shook, handed over the billfold. John drove away. And when he got home, he was starting to tell his wife about the experience she interrupted him by saying, oh, John, before I forget, do you know that you left your wallet at home this morning? I'll give you a second here. Think about that one. Okay, some are catching up with me now. Good, good, good. Assumptions, false assumptions, lead to false accusations. And so what I want you to see is not one, not two, but three accusations are made against the Apostle Paul. And the issue now is, how do I respond? Well, now, you consider how God's sovereign purposes are at work when false accusations are made against God's people. But now, we're at that point in the trial where the prosecution rests their case, defense takes its stand. And so, from verse 10 down through verse 21, note second of all with me, Consider how God's sovereign purposes are at work when faithful answers are provided by God's people. Pick it up now, verse 10. When the governor had nodded him to him to speak, Paul replied, your eyebrows are raised. Paul didn't hire a defense attorney. He's alone. And sometimes in the midst of the trials of your life, you might feel as though I'm alone. Who's going to speak for me, stand up for me? I want you to notice the calm courage. There is this sense of inner peace. There seems to be a serenity in the storm. He now looks at this one, this Felix, 
And most likely, he's saying to himself, I've got, a, I've got both Jews and Gentiles present. It's a great opportunity to share the gospel. Likewise, when you're put on the defensive, and it seems as though life seems to be coming apart, bear in mind why you're here. You've got purpose to life. You've got a promise to embrace through life. What's God's plan? Why am I here? So you're recalling now Ronald Reagan's mother's counsel. And now you're looking at how Paul responds. And notice he doesn't use that false flattery that Tertullus used. Rather, he's going to cut to the chase. And you like that about the Apostle Paul. Goes for the core. He acknowledges the authority here. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. He doesn't say how well. He just says you've been a judge. Speaking factually at this point. But what I want to bear in mind is that what we have said repeatedly through the years. Is that when you are dealing with legal systems. As it relates to your sovereign God. Government is lowercase authority. God is uppercase authority. And when there is rebellion against God, they get flipped. What Paul is about to do now is to remind them there is one greater than Caesar. Who three days later was raised from the grave. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Because at this point, what he says to the judge. You have been a judge over this nation. And now astoundingly. He says, I cheerfully, I cheerfully make my defense. Now he's about to put the governor, his judge, on the hot seat. In other words, he's going to make him responsible. Because he says to Felix now in verse 11, here's his assignment for the week. You can verify that was the responsibility of the legal system in Rome. They had to verify facts. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Now, if he has been in Caesarea for five days already, and there are witnesses to the fact that he went through purification rites in Jerusalem that would take him out of, out of the uh, settings of Jerusalem for X number of days, that minimizes the potential of being an instigator of riots, doesn't it? Subtly, he's making this case. You can verify it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And now you and I, we're up to verse 12. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. No eyewitnesses. In Roman legal circles, eyewitnesses were critical. Thus far, nobody stepped up to the plate. In verse 13, neither can they, these ones that came down from Jerusalem, Ananias and the other leaders of the Sanhedrin, who seem to have an obsession when it comes to the Apostle Paul. 
And sometimes you're going to bump into people that have an obsession with trying to prove their case that it will affect you negatively. But neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But now, and this is brilliant. I want you to love this. But this I confess to you. Pause. It's almost as if Felix would be leaning forward saying, okay, now I'm going to get the confession. He's about to come clean. I'm going to find out what this is all about. You're about to smile. Here's the confession. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. And he's being inclusive, so he's saying, I'm Jewish, they're Jewish. They love the Old Testament. I love the Older Testament. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. He goes to the Older Testament. The apostle never viewed his mission to be something other that that was brand new and unattached from what God had been doing in the past or what God wanted to do in the present or future. His scriptures, in that case, the Older Testament, was his authoritative source. It held the mission that he was on to proclaim the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike. He's appealing to a higher authority. There is someone greater than Caesar he is referencing at this point. He knows what he believes. So does Hillsong. Our Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. And that comes out of Australia. And speaking of Australia, not to be outdone, the newsboys. In this time of desperation when all we know is doubt and fear, there is only one foundation we believe. We believe. In this broken generation when all is dark, you help us see. There is only one salvation we believe. We believe. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that he conquered death. We believe in the resurrection and that he's coming back again. We believe. And here's Paul. He knows why he believes. Because in verse 14, believing everything laid down by the law, written in the prophets, 
And for the hopeless, here is something that makes us hopeful. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, just what the Apostle Paul pressed when he stood before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. G.K. Chesterton. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope's merely flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. Be hopeful. When everything around you might seem hopeless. And so in verse 16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And now food for thought, Felix. Check out 17. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation. They're claiming I came to produce a riot. But there is evidence because they equipped him with the monetary resources to deliver to Jerusalem. I came with alms, which is highly valued in the Middle East. Bring alms to my nation to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But get this. And this is critically important in Roman circles, in judicial hearings. Eyewitnesses. Where are they? But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what's wrong, what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Hmm. This man's got hope. This man draws our attention to the uppercase authority. Do you? Well... To reiterate, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, and now he goes on record, and they know it. As a matter of fact, there was a Roman by the name of Claudius Lysias, who was, in fact, the tribune on hand with his soldiers to hear this. We're in verse 21. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And there you have it. All of a sudden, he turns it away from himself and points toward Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. And I was thinking about this on that Easter week. William Sangster was a gifted pastor in Great Britain. And on the Easter just before he died, he, he penned a, a note to his daughter. He had been spearheading a renewal movement in the British Isles after the Second World War. But then his ministry, except for prayer, was ended by a disease, Lou Gehrig's. 
progressively paralyzed his body, even his vocal cords. But the last resurrection Sunday he spent on earth, still able to move his fingers, he wrote these words. How terrible to wake up on Easter and have no voice to shout, He is risen. Far worse to have a voice and not want to shout. But there is Paul, and he's standing before Felix. And you take a look at this painting that appears on the screen because the Apostle Paul, with absolute resoluteness in the midst of this trial, points to the one who matters most, the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. I assume, Father, every time I speak, I'm speaking to battle-weary people. Gone through trials that have added up over time. Battles that have left them bloodied and worn out. But yet they get up and they step back out into the battlefield. And they do it because there's a risen Savior. So, Father, I pray now for anyone battle-weary in any of these services today or for the online gathering of people through the course of the days to come, that you press resurrection reality into their hearts, into their minds, into their souls, and may, by resurrection power, they come to grips with the fact that though there are trials in life, the truth of Jesus Christ over takes and overwhelms the trials that life delivers. We praise you for this. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.